Hola queridos amigos, bienvenidos a otra entrega de Contracara aquí en TLB1, Toda la Verdad Primero. Gracias a todos ustedes por la colaboración, gracias a todos ustedes por los mensajes, las muestras de afecto y por supuesto por colaborar con TLB1, ¿eh? que sobrevive solo gracias al apoyo de todos ustedes. Hoy vamos a hacer un programa muy especial, será mitad en inglés, mitad en castellano, porque tenemos un invitado muy particular y por supuesto quiero compartir el programa con el licenciado en Ciencias Políticas, es periodista, articulista, el estimado licenciado Luis Álvarez Primo. Gracias Luis por estar con nosotros. Gracias Juan Manuel por la invitación. Para mí es un gusto. Por supuesto ponemos este programa bajo la protección ¿eh? de la Virgen de Guadalupe, reina y señora, emperatriz de América, que nos acompaña, nos protege, nos anima y estamos siempre bajo su protección. Así que agradecemos a la Virgen de Guadalupe desde ya por este, este apoyo. El programa de hoy, vamos a orientarlo un poquito sobre cómo se vive el catolicismo en general, las problemáticas del mundo de hoy modernos y para mí es un gusto que compartamos el programa con el profesor eh, Eugenio Michael Jones. Eh. Eh, we all, we all, let's, let's say it in English now, we appreciate that you are sharing with us this program with the Contracara here in TLB1. Eh, thank you for everybody that is helping us all the uh, uh, support through different ways that uh, you do with TLB1 as well as we are by, under the protection of the Virgin de Guadalupe, Queen Mary and protector of uh, Hispano America and Latin America or Hispanic America. And we are under her protection. Eh? And in this uh, world of, uh, of uh, darkness that we are living today. Uh, we are sharing this program with uh, Luis Álvarez Primo, which is uh, a degree in political science, he's a journalist, and he's a writer as well. And we are interviewing uh, Michael Jones, Dr. Michael Jones, from the United States. Así que bienvenido, señor Jones. Quiero presentarlo. El doctor Jones es eh, doctor en filosofía, en letras también. Es profesor y fue profesor en la eh, St. Mary's College eh, en Estados Unidos. Director de la editorial Fidelity Press. Es editor de la revista Guerras Culturales. Es conferenciante internacional en Europa, Asia y Hispanoamérica. Es autor de una vasta cantidad de obras, de libros, particularmente El Espíritu eh, Revolucionario de los Judíos y su impacto en la historia mundial. Líbido, otro, líbido dominante, liberación sexual y control político. Otro, mental, eh, eh, estéril. Men, eh, mental estéril, exactamente. Historia del capitalismo como conflicto entre la usura y el trabajo. Y otras obras, como su última obra, particularmente un tratado de filosofía que se llama el Logos Rising o el Renacimiento del Logos. Michael Jones is a doctor in philosophy and in letters, eh, or literature. He is an ex-former professor of St. Mary's College, director also the, of the Fidelity Press editorial. He is editor of the uh, magazine Cultural Wars. He's a, a 
conferenciante, right? Yes. He's a conferenciante, international uh, speaker uh, in Europe, Asia, and uh, uh, Hispanoamerica. Also, is a, a writer of a vast uh, number of books. Between them, we can re, uh, we can we can uh, mention. mention, for example, the spirit, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which is in the impact and in the world in world, history, in world yes. history, which is a book here, and Libro Dominante, which is uh, the sexual revolution and political control. A mental uh, sterile, which is a history of capitalism and their conflict between the usury and work. And also, uh, particularly his last work, which is a, a treaty of philosophy, which is called The Logos Racing. Thank Rising. you, Rising. Thank you very much, uh, Michael Jones. Thank you, uh, gracias, este, Luis Alvarez Plimo. And, uh, Let's start it and comencemos. Uh, my Dr. Jones, I would like if you can briefly tell us about what is this all about the logos racing, your last work. Rising. Rising. Uh, this book is the result of uh, travels that I made all around the world. Uh, I was in India, uh, Iran. Uh, Europe, uh, various places, uh, engaged in conversations with people all over the world and realizing that we had a common language, uh, English, uh, but we had no common philosophical vocabulary. And so I decided to write this book uh, to facilitate a conversation on a higher level. Uh, the book was also based on my experience in writing The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, because that book would have been impossible to write without the word logos, the Greek word for word, speech, and rationality. Uh, the thesis of that book was that the Jews rejected logos when they rejected Christ, and when they rejected Christ, they rejected the order of the universe, and when they did that, they became revolutionaries. So that, that's how I came about writing to write this book. Well, Dr. Jones, it's a real pleasure to talk to you here, and we, we have fresh in our memory your visit to Argentina uh, two or three years ago. Uh, it was an everlasting memory, indeed, and we wish that Thank you. we, we Thank have you. here again, maybe to present, to introduce uh, Logos Rising sometime in the future, and perhaps uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, too, in Spanish. Now, I would like, you have already referred to the Jewish revolutionary spirit. I would like you to emphasize again why it's important to understand this concept and to have a clear definition of what Jews are. Okay, I had to define what Jews are because the Jews will not tell you what they are. And so I, I uh, broke through the kind of racial description that came arose in the 19th century and went back to a theological definition, which is basically uh, the Jews are rejectors of Logos. This is their identity, uh, and because of this identity, they form part of the uh, history of, uh, of the world uh, from the time of the crucifixion when they 
rejection became formal all the way to the present day. Uh, the history of uh, world history is the conflict between Logos and anti-Logos. So I wrote this book uh, roughly 11 years ago. And recently I was invited to Armenia and realized that I knew next to nothing about Armenia. And so I started to look into one of the main events, the most recent event, uh, important event in Armenian history, which was the Armenian genocide. Uh, this conflict has now pretty much reached a stalemate. Uh, the Turks hold the Armenians responsible. The Armenians heard the, hold the Turks responsible. But the more I looked into it, I found that it was impossible to understand what really happened without understanding the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Because both the Turks, the young Turks, the revolutionary movement in uh, Turkey, uh, early 20th century, and the Armenians had both been influenced directly by the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I'm talking specifically about the first Jewish terrorist organization in history, uh, Narodnaya Volia. Both the Turks and the Armenians made contact with this group when they went to the universities in Russia at that time. I so I came to the conclusion that it wasn't just me, it wasn't a category of my mind, that the Jewish revolutionary spirit is a category of reality, and it explains things that otherwise are incomprehensible. I see. Now, uh, this uh, Jewish spirit has manifested itself in history uh, in different uh, false messiahs. Can you, can you mention some of them and what is or who is the last messiah, in your opinion? Well, For probably the most famous false messiah was Shabbatai Zivi. Uh, he was a uh, Ladino. Uh, his family had been expelled from Spain in 1492, and uh, they went to the Ottoman Empire. And uh, he was living in Izmir. Uh, he was what the what they call in Turkey a donma. Uh, he was the creator of the donma. Uh, so during this period of time, six, 1666, Shabbatai Zivi announced that he was the Jewish Messiah. At this point, every synagogue in Europe accepted his claim, accepted that he was the Messiah, and many of them sold their property to sail to Turkey to be with him. Uh, Shabbatai Zivi then went to Constantinople, to Istanbul, and he announced to the Sultan that he was the Messiah. The Sultan then announced to him that if he were the Messiah, then uh, he was going to have his soldiers uh, fire arrows at him, and if he were the Messiah, they wouldn't harm him. Or he could convert to Islam. At this point, the Jewish Messiah converted to Islam. It was a catastrophic effect for the world's Jews. Heinrich Graetz, who's the father of Jewish historiography, said it was the most catastrophic event in Jewish history since the destruction of the temple.
So at this point, his followers, he turned to his followers, and after he converted to Islam, he told them he didn't really convert to Islam. And so he created a sect in Turkey known as the Donmeth. And these, this group of people who were what the Spaniards would call conversos, uh, carried this tradition forward all the way up to the Young Turk Revolution, which I just described. And uh, they carried the Jewish revolutionary spirit all the way up to the uh, 20th century. I would like to and they you. became the Donmeh the Don of Salonika became the main force which overthrew the uh, Ottoman Empire and put the uh, uh, basically Ataturk and modern Turkey in its place. How does uh, sexual corruption, sexual uh, liberation relate to these, this false messiah? And even in, in contemporary times in, in, in the United States or, or, else in, or uh, somewhere else in the world? Well, uh, the alleged, the story is that Shabbatai Zivi did promote uh, sexual liberation. He was also, he had, a, a, uh, it was a singer. He had a very powerful singing voice and apparently he was like uh, the rock star of the 17th century. Uh, but the, so, so this, 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 what Shabbatai Zivi did to the Jews was he liberated them from the law in a way that was the perverse opposite of the way Jesus Christ liberated the Jews who became Christians from the law. Uh, Shabbatai Zivi encouraged them to violate uh, the moral law, uh, and they did, and his followers became notorious for that. This, in many ways, established a tradition that exists to this day, because the Jews are always involved in some type of revolutionary activity. And in the 20th century, that activity got sexualized and it's now known as the sexual revolution. It was a Jew uh, by the name of Wilhelm Reich who came up with the term sexual revolution. And we've seen this all the way up to today, uh, all the, the uh, existence of pornography. Pornography was a Jewish invention the Jews dominated pornography. They dominate it to this day. The Jews used pornography to overturn the sexual morality in Germany. I discussed this in the chapter on Werner Heisenberg in Logos Rising. I discussed this also at the end of uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and I discuss it as well in Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Directly related to sexual liberation and sexual corruption is a, a tradition in which you discuss also, which is Jewish humor. How does uh, Jewish humor, the funny Jew, relate to this uh, uh, operations of corruption of morals? Well, yeah, the, the Jews uh, dominated show business and uh, during the middle part of the 20th century, uh, we saw a lot of Jewish comedians. Uh, basically, all comedians at this time, uh, by, the, by the 1960s, virtually every comedian in America was Jewish. And at this point, uh, they started to get political. And the guy who was the most political of the Jewish comedians was Lenny Bruce. 
Now, Lenny Bruce uh, would always, Lenny Bruce, when he would perform, he had to get a reaction from people. And many times what he said was not funny. But he found that he could get a reaction by being transgressive and basically attacking uh, social mor morals and, and uh, the social standards of his day. And that's what he became famous for. Now, at this time, there were still laws against this type of behavior, and he was arrested repeatedly. But the net result of Lenny Bruce, I mean, after Hollywood made a movie about him, the standards had collapsed. And, and, and the problem here was, okay, the standards collapsed, and once they collapsed, the Jew had nothing to talk about. He basically was was a transgressive, uh, a transgressive revolutionary who tried to destroy the sexual morality of his day. He succeeded. And a figure, a figure but, who, who is closer to us is Woody Allen. Can you comment on that? Yes, it, it, you, Woody Allen became uh, uh, really famous with a movie. Uh, called Annie Hall, which came out in 1976. Annie Hall was basically Woody Allen's film version of uh, Philip Roth's book, Portnoy's Complaint. And Portnoy's Complaint was an assault on the what he perceived as American culture. It's in there in the middle. There's part of it where he talks about uh, being a terrorist, a member of the Stern gang uh, because he was attacking a quiz show uh, called uh, uh, 21, a uh, famous quiz show. Uh, this became a movie uh, uh, tw about 20 years later. Uh, but what you see here is humor as aggression. Humor was a form of aggression because the Jew at this point was determined to ridicule the institutions of the American society that had accepted him. And, and the more uh, overt his aggression, the, the less funny he became. And so this, over a period of time, let's say over a period of 30 years from the sex tape, maybe a period of 50 years, you evolved into people who call themselves comedians who are not funny at all. Jewish comedians like Sarah Silverman. If you do a Google search of Sarah Silverman, she, she says things like uh, that she would kill Christ again if she had the chance. I don't, this is not funny. It, it's not funny. She also talks about how great abortion is. Again, this is not funny. So what, what you see over this period of time is the Jews succeeded in their cultural subversion, but they stopped being funny. So another way of looking at this would be the trajectory of someone like uh, Alan Dershowitz, who is a lawyer from the Harvard Law School. He was re recently implicated with Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, women have made uh, credible accusations against him that he sexually molested them when they were minors. What is uh, the word you shiksa? In this regard, shiksa, what does it mean, Sh shiksa? Shiksa is the, is the Yiddish word for a Gentile woman. 
and uh, the, the shiksa became part of uh, Jewish pornography. So it turns out that the Jewish pornography scenario is basically Jewish men, uh, to use their word, stooping uh, shiksas. Uh, that was part of the whole, that's part of the story. It's also part of the story of, of uh, Philip Roth's book, uh, Portnoy's Complaint. When you talk about revolutionary, the Jewish revolutionary uh, revolution, what that that it's mean? It's uh, what goals do, do do they pursue to declare themselves as a revolutionary, or what what, what type of uh, revolution are talking about? But in order to understand revolution in the philosophical sense, you have to understand logos. What is logos? Logos is the order of the universe. It is rationality. It is the political order. Uh, all the things that Greek philosophers used to talk about. The revolutionary, the Jewish revolutionary spirit is in rebellion against Logos. They killed Christ, who is the Logos incarnate. They want to overturn Logos wherever they find it. Well, they, they, they have succeeded. <laughs> so the, the Logos uh, that they try to overturn becomes more and more uh, revolutionary as time goes on. It threatens the social order more and more. They do this through so what social engineering. They do this today through social engineering too. So social engineering became a concept uh, in the 1940s when Gunnar Myrdal wrote his book, The American Dilemma. That book was about race. So race has always been the vehicle of social engineering in America to this day, okay? And it's obvious now with the riots uh, over the death of George Floyd that race is still an important part of that uh, social engineering. Uh, but over this period of time, the, 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 the Jews became more and more prominent in this revolutionary social engineering. Okay, so beginning in Chicago, for example, I've written another book on this. It's called The Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing. After World War II, race was weaponized to drive Catholics from the neighborhoods of Chicago, uh, the ethnic neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. People in Chicago were not white. They were Italian, they were, they were Polish, they were Irish, they were German. They were European colonies in America but they were turned into white people because then race could be a, a weapon that could uh, use to ethnically cleanse them from their neighborhood. The architect of this ethnic cleansing was a Jew uh, from the University of Chicago by the name of Louis Wirth. So they've been involved in this. This, again, was a form of revolutionary movement, and the Jews were involved from the beginning. Culture and society have been revolutionized and so has the church, the Catholic church. What has happened? Well, the, the most important thing that happened was the Second Vatican Council. And the most important document in this regard in the Second Vatican Council was Nostra Aetate. Now, Nostra Aetate reaffirmed traditional Catholic teaching in a kind of ironic fashion that was supposed to placate the Jews. 
So instead of saying the Jews killed Christ, Nosertate uh, says not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his crucifixion. That means some Jews were responsible for his crucifixion. Now, what the, what the Jews wanted, and this I document this in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, the Jews wanted the Catholic Church to say no Jew was responsible for the death of Christ. Now, the man who was supposed to achieve this goal was a Jesuit by the name of Malachi Martin, who was an assistant to Cardinal Bea, who was the man responsible for uh, Nostratate. These Jews, the Jews failed in doing this, as I said, but it didn't matter because the Jews controlled the interpretation of Vatican II, and they said that it meant what they said, even though the document said the opposite. This led to a 50-year-long experiment known as Catholic-Jewish dialogue, and that that dialogue has been a failure. Uh, and even the Vatican, as Luis, you translated this document or my article on this document into Spanish. Even the Vatican has to admit that it failed. Now, Archbishop Vigano has questioned several uh, statements by uh, Bishop Schneider concerning Vatican II in a recent article. Are you familiar with it? Is this the letter to Donald Trump? No, it's a, it, it came later, uh, okay. a few weeks later. Okay, so no, I'm not familiar with this. Uh -huh. Well, we would so also what about, like you... What about the, 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 the letter to Donald Trump? Yes, can you comment on that, on uh, uh, Bishop Trudeau's letter to President Trump? Yes, it was, it was disappointing. Uh, I, I had signed the petition that he cr uh, created about the, sent out about the COVID virus, but this letter was disappointing. It was disappointing for two reasons. First of all, he blamed Vatican II, and secondly, he said that uh, the, the parties responsible for this subversion were Freemasons. Both of these statements are false. Freemas First of all, Freemasonry, certainly in the United States, is an obsolete revolutionary movement. It has no meaning anymore. Secondly, the, the problem is not with Vatican II. The problem is the subversion of Vatican II. And in say, talking this way, uh, Archbishop Vigano shows complete ignorance of what really happened. Why He should have mentioned Malachi Martin and what Malachi Martin did at Vatican II. But to do that, he would have to mention the Jews. And so the question is, is he afraid to talk about the Jews? I see. So what about, you mentioned I mean, in, in your book, for example, the liberation, sexual liberation and political control. Uh, what do you mean by political control? Seems like uh, they got the control over the industry of sexual pornography, etc., etc. What about the political control? That, do they have control over the policies, uh, the politicians? the way the politics uh, run today? Uh, first of all, the main, the main uh, vehicle of uh, sexual liberation and political control in our day is pornography. Uh, and it has been used uh, in a military sense. 
by the Israelis. The Israelis invaded Ramallah. Uh, they put uh, when they took over the TV stations and they broadcast pornography over their TV stations. This is uh, the weaponization of pornography. It also shows that pornography is a weapon. Now, how does this weapon work? Well, it keeps it's supposed to keep people docile. It keeps people isolated. It keeps people from uniting with other people. It also has a demographic effect because it prevents marriage. It inhibits marriage. You put all of these things together and you have basically a demographic uh, weapon that renders large segments of the population docile and easy to manipulate. So what happened over this period of time is huge numbers of young people got addicted to pornography and then they woke up and realized that they were addicted. Uh, now this led to a reversal of their behavior. Uh, I, uh, people have told me, young uh, people in their 20s have told me that uh, reading Libido Dominandi awakened them to the fact that they had a sexual addiction. And some people simply stopped watching it, watching pornography, simply because I explained that it was a form of control. But in November, there was a, a movement, in November of 2019, an org organized boycott of pornography on the internet by people uh, who understood that they were addicted and wanted to do something about it. As soon as they did this, they, ca they came to the attention of the oligarchs who prepared this trap for them. And so an article appeared in Rolling Stone, which is a, a mainstream media oligarch outlet here in the United States. And they were ridiculed for their boycott. And then finally, they were accused of being anti-Semites uh, for boycotting pornography. Mr. Jones, we, Luis, we're going to the commercial break. Uh, we will write back. Uh, vamos a un corte comercial, vamos a un pequeño break y volvemos enseguida con el doctor Michael Jones. Ya volvemos. Bueno, estamos de vuelta aquí en Contracara con el doctor Michael Jones. We are back in Contracara with Dr. Michael Jones. And uh, we were listening to the, 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 the last block. Yes, um, I would like to ask you, Dr. Jones, about President Trump. He's a disturbing figure. Uh, many people here would like to understand where he stands. Sometimes uh, he has a, a nationalist conservative discourse, but sometimes he acts uh, as subservient to Israelis Israel. and Jews. Well, is he a trustworthy figure from our point of view? Uh, Donald Trump is like the broken clock that's, that's right twice a day. <laughs> He's, uh, to, in order to understand Donald Trump, you have to understand the fact that he comes from New York City. If you're involved in real estate in New York City, you have to, you have to do business with the Jews. There's no way around this. And so this is the lesson that he learned. I think that he felt that in order to be effective as a president, he would have to do business with the Jews. This meant that he basically handed over the entire foreign policy of the United States of America to three rich Jews, uh, one of whom is famous in Argentina. Okay, so, so we have Sheldon Adelson, Bernard Marcus and the man who's famous in Argentina, Paul, Paul Singer. Singer. 
right. the vulture capitalists, the vulture capitalists who bought up Argentine debt and then got the uh, after the uh, parties agreed to take a haircut and impose it on full face value on the Argentine people. So these are the people that determine America's foreign policy. At the same time, Trump is a populist when it comes to domestic policy. He reminds me of Perón. <laughs> Not that right. I know a lot about Perón, but you have this kind of demagoguery and populism all at, at, the, at the same time, and a completely unpredictable man who has no philosophical coherence whatsoever. What about the, the defense of life, for example, anti-abortion, and his, uh, yes. his, see, his works Trump, on that, you know? Donald Trump is the most pro-life president in the history of the United States of America. He has defunded Planned Parenthood, done many things. Donald Trump is also the most pro-homosexual president in the history of the United States of America. Now, how can this is a contradiction, but that's that's what he is. He's a contradiction. What about what about you in one of your writings uh, you mentioned about the CIA, like uh, the intelligence services work against the Catholic Church. What is what is about? Is part of the political control that you mean, or is is that the Jewish took his eyes over the the CIA and work on that? Uh, in order to understand America, you have to understand that it is a country made up of three ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. It's like Yugoslavia, which was a, a country based on three ethnic groups, based on three religions as well. That was Serb, Croat, and uh, Muslim. These groups in America were always at war with each other. And so after World War II, uh, the dominant group was the Protestants, a group we call the WASP, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and they made up the ruling class. The, the WASP elite had universities. One of them was Harvard and one of them was Yale. Mm. Uh, the CIA recruited exclusively from Yale University at this point, uh, especially from secret societies like Skull and Bones and George, both George Bush Sr., who was the head of the CIA for a while, and George Bush Jr. Uh, were members of this secret society. These people hated Catholicism. They had an ancestral hatred of Catholicism. And so they, they felt that Catholicism was a problem, a political problem for the United States of America, largely because of the birth rate of Catholics. And so they set out to solve this problem, first of all, by uh, persuading the Catholics to use contraception, by overturning the church's teaching on contraception, uh, that was done as a collaboration between John D. Rockefeller III and Father Hesburgh. Uh, but they also decided to change the church's teaching on the relationship between church and state. And they got directly involved in the Second Vatican Council, just like the Jews, except they were interested in the document Dignitatis Humanae, which is the document on church-state relations. And their agent was a Jesuit by the name of John Courtney Murray, 
who had direct connections with Harry Luce, who was the publisher of Time Magazine. And Time Magazine was the, uh, uh, the propaganda ministry for the CIA at this time. The crucial link between Time Magazine and the CIA was a man by the name of C.D. Jackson, who was on the board of both organizations, involved in both organizations. Uh, David Wemhoff published a book on this called John Courtney Murray, Time, Life, and the CIA, and it's available from Fidelity Press. Is, uh, is, is that part of what we call nowadays the deep state? Yes, yes, yes. The, the, so the, Donald Trump uh, is hated by the deep state. He has been hated ever since he got elected. The deep state has tried to overthrow Donald Trump ever since he was elected. So the first attempt uh, was the called Russiagate, uh, claiming that uh, Donald Trump was a, pu a puppet of uh, Vladimir Putin. The FBI was heavily involved in this. The FBI represent is a large uh, a segment of the deep state. And is there nothing two, happened there? Is there a deep church too? No, no, the church has no influence whatsoever on uh, uh, policy in the United States of America. The closest we have to this is the, the Jesuits. The Jesuits are a fifth column uh, within the Catholic Church. They represent oligarchic interests, and they are also the cutting edge of the Catholic attempt to legitimize homosexuality. The main figure in that regard is uh, James Martin, SJ. A, a, a notorious proponent, proponent of homosexuality. Because our Bishop Pigano referred to the deep church to making a parallel analogous to the deep state. In any case- The deep, if, if you're talking- Yes. If, if you're talking about the deep church, uh, what comes to mind is uh, Vigano's claim that there is was, there was a homosexual mafia in the church. The hom homosexuals are the cutting are the cutting edge of the revolutionary movement, uh, or they were up until the riots. Uh, they are uh, revolutionaries because of the fact that they are in rebellion against human nature, and the the United States government has used these people uh, to overturn the social order, but also to take control of certain segments of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Jesuits being a good example. <coughs> this coronavirus uh, totalitarian scam all over the world, could it have been possible without certain degree of complicity from the hierarchy of the church? The hierarchy has done nothing to contest all of the, the absurd claims that are made in the name of the coronavirus. The, the, the church has... Uh, provided no resistance to this. The, the, the only place that I go now where, where masks are mandatory is mass now. Going to mass, I have to wear a mask if I go to mass. I don't have to wear it if I go to a restaurant. There's no any place else I, I could simply ignore the rule, but I can't ignore it at church. And what that does mean the, the, to you? It means that the church has capitulated. Uh, we have a tradition here called the separation of church and state. This is proved to be completely meaningless. We have the Jewish governor of Illinois 
setting liturgical rules for the Catholic Church. This is a, a, a flagrant violation of the Church's First Amendment rights, but uh, the Church is not contesting it. They talk about a new normality uh, after different phases of COVID-19. Uh, what do you expect about this new normality? Will they achieve this new totalitarian order or will people rebel against it? Well, uh, first of all, uh, the COVID lockdown was imposed in different ways in different parts of the United States. So it was the strictest in places like New York and Michigan and California. Well, it turns out that they are all governed by Democratic governors. So this means either the Democrats are more likely to get the coronavirus, or it means that the Democrats are using the coronavirus as a way of making sure that Donald Trump does not get elected. Uh, I think that the latter is the case. But even, so what happened, what happened? At, by the end of May in places like Michigan, the people had simply stopped following the COVID rules. Nobody was following the COVID rules. And so at that point, the governor of Michigan was in a bind. She had to decide what to do. Fortunately, she was spared that decision by the riots which followed the death of George Floyd. At this point, uh, the mayor of New York City actually said that it was all right to demonstrate against racism uh, in total violation of the COVID rules. So he completely uh, destroyed his own lockdown. One more contradiction. Political, by, by this hypocritical contradiction. So the question here is, there, there does, we are, we are now being governed by crisis. So we go from one crisis to the next in the United States of America, and each crisis demands that we give up certain rights. The only question here is, is, is this going to be layer upon layer of control, or is one crisis going to contradict the other crisis, which seems to be what happened with the George Floyd riots? because all of those people went out on the street and they basically defied the lockdown regulations. So in many ways, George Floyd was the cure for the coronavirus. How involved uh, were George Soros and Bill Gates in all of this uh, coronavirus uh, epidem ep epidemic? Well, uh, George, uh, uh, Bill Gates was the, the main player here and his agent was uh, Anthony Fauci. And his goal was clear. He wanted to lock the entire world down until he came up with a vaccine, and then he was going to sell the entire world a vaccine. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. No one will accept, I, I, very few people accept this vaccine voluntarily. As far as I know, George Soros was not involved in this at all. But George Soros was heavily involved in Black Lives Matter. So what you saw in Black Lives Matter, again, was uh, there was a, a player that was invisible. So if you look at what happened there, there's a white cop kneeling on the neck of a black man. That's what we were supposed to see. It was supposed to be racial. But when I showed this picture to some Palestinians, what they saw was 
the kneel, kneeling is the method whereby Israelis subdue Palestinians. And it turns out that the Minneapolis police force was trained by Israelis. And it turns out that the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is taking uh, every, basically every police force in the United States, either taking them to Israel or bringing Israel to the United States to train the policemen to treat American citizens the way Israelis treat Palestinians. Now, that's one side. The other side that is the black man. And here we have George Soros uh, funding Black Lives Matter. So what you have here are two Jewish groups basically fomenting race war in the United States of America, and no one knows that they're doing it. Now, what is their aim? How does this relate to the theory that some people uphold, meaning that China is a kind of model for the oligarch of the New World Order? Well, I think what we're seeing here is a, a replay of the Cultural Revolution that took place in China in 1966. I think that's what's happening right now, especially if you look at a place like Minneapolis or Seattle. I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, Sidney Rittenberg. Yes. Sidney Rittenberg was a Jew from Charleston, South Carolina, who went to China and spoke perfect Chinese and became a member of the Communist Party and was one of the leaders of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. Uh, he, he, he could rise. It's amazing that he could arrive to a position of leadership, but not if you understand the Jewish revolutionary spirit, because that's the hidden grammar of all these revolutionary movements, and no one knows it better than a Jew. And so what you have here, just something no, people don't know, okay? What we're seeing here is that Michigan, Chicago, Seattle, the players here, the governor, the mayor of Seattle is a Catholic lesbian. The mayor of Chicago is a black lesbian. And the attorney general of Michigan is a Jewish lesbian. All of these people were put in power because the revolutionary movement was uh, headed by Jews when they were appointed uh, by Obama to be a U.S. attorney in those places. Uh, Dr. Jones. In, in, Chicago, yes. in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, the lesbian mayor, is married to another woman, and that woman is Jewish. She's got a Jewish wife, in quotes. What this woman did, she did exactly what Stanley Rittenberg did, Sidney Rittenberg did in China. During the, uh, during the rioting, she led a whole group of Chicago public school students into the streets where they attacked the police. So you see an exact, almost an exact replication on a minor scale of the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, run by the same group of people. When you're talking about that there is a, there is a fight or, or confrontation between uh, two ambiguous Jewish interests, because we see Soros, Bill Gates from one side, and then we see Donald Trump uh, backed by Blackstone Rock and some you know, uh, Jewish uh, investment funds. Uh, 
what do you see? Do you see that there is a good one, there is a bad one? There is no outcome well out of all these? This is, this is against Trump for, to become a, in a second term president? Is Biden uh, moving what side? Uh, what, how can you explain to us this confrontation? What is the goal? Because it seems to me that both are the same in a way. Well, the, the Jews, ever since the, uh, the crucifixion, ever since the destruction of the temple, the Jews have always been divided into two parties. And at that time, it was the party of Hillel and the party of Shammai. And uh, in the 19th century, in the Pale of the Settlement in Western Russia, the two parties were basically Zionism and communism. Uh, and sometimes the Zionists have the upper hand, uh, which is, I would say, now. But in the early part of the 20th century, the middle part, it was the communists that had the upper hand in terms of determining uh, Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, what they've developed is basically a way of dominating both sides of the discussion. So the Jews, uh, uh, as in the middle of the, let's say in the 1930s, a Jew like Irving Kristol was a Trotskyite. But then by the 1960s, he had become a conservative. He, was, he is the father of neoconservatism. So when I was thinking about this, it's impossible to talk about a, a political, a consistent political alignment here. The only thing that remains constant is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And sometimes that manifests itself on the right as nationalism, like the Likud party or neoconservatism. And sometimes it manifests itself on the left, like internationalism, like Trotsky, like communism. Excuse me, changing the subject a little. When you came to Argentina, you, you mentioned uh, the Acton Institute and Father Robert Sirico, who promotes uh, free market capitalism uh, and, 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 and free market theories, etc., etc., and holds seminars to indoctrinate Catholics in the United States and in Argentina. Uh, now, it seems that all those uh, libertarians uh, have uh, disappeared from the earth during these times of totalitarianism that we are living in uh, under uh, so-called democracy. Uh, what do you think it has happened to them? Conservatism, uh, libertarianism is a form of conservatism. Uh, conservatism was an alliance between social conservatives and uh, economic conservatives, which were known as libertarians. This was called fusionism. Uh, William F. Buckley tried to keep these two factions together in his magazine, uh, National Review, and uh, it collapsed with the fall of communism. Okay, so conservatism is now an obsolete political movement. It has no meaning anymore, and if conservatism has basically disappeared, that means Libertarianism is going to disappear as well. It's it, the man. Two, there are two two people who killed conservatism. One is your former Archbishop Pope Francis, who is now Pope Francis, 
killed conservatism, killed the neoconservative movement in the Catholic Church, and now people like Robbie George and Father Sirica have been sidelined, okay? The other person that killed conservatism was Donald Trump. So we're living in a new, a new era here, okay? Now, Sirica, apparently the word has not reached Argentina. The word uh, has not reached the Argentine bishops that Father Sirica is an agent of wealthy oligarchs who want to destroy the church's social teaching as manifested in documents like Rerum Navarum. This is part of the infallible magisterium of the Catholic Church, and Father Sirica has gone on record in the New York Times as saying that uh, Rerum Navarum no longer applies. Uh, I, apparently, the bishops in Argentina don't know this because they attended his seminar. What about uh, masonry, right? We, we, we know that they, they have a long story, history in the United States, you know, with great masons like George Washington and so many other ones. Uh, do you believe that the masonry, as they open up today in such a way, like in Argentina and Catholic countries, uh, means like uh, it's a philanthropic, uh, you know, entities. But at the same time, uh, what role do you believe they do have in the United States? Do they still strong? Do they still influence? Do they, do, are they part of the problem? First of all, Freemasonry was the cutting edge of the revolutionary spirit in the 18th century. And they had a devastating effect on South America. Just to give one example, it was the uh, Marquis de Pombal and uh, the Duc de Choiseul who uh, basically destroyed the Jesuit order, had the Jesuit order banned, uh, suppressed. That, that destroyed the, uh, the only alternative to capitalism and slavery in the American hemisphere, and that was the Jesuit reductions in Paraguay. So it destroyed that. Uh, but the, the uh, Freemasonry lost its influence. It began to lose its influence at the time of the French Revolution. The Duke of Orléans was, um, wrote a little autobiography right before he had his head chopped off. And he said that he was a Freemason, but he said Freemasonry was like the candle that is unnecessary when the sun comes up and the sun is revolution. So at that point, and certainly in Europe, revolution uh, began to supersede Freemasonry as the revolution, the revolutionary avant-garde, and that was completed by the time of the Russian Revolution. And at that point, Freemasonry uh, ceased to be uh, the dominant revolutionary force. Now, Freemasonry was the dominant revolutionary force in Turkey at this time. So it varies from, from place to place. If you look at the United States, every politician was a Freemason up until well into the 20th century. But it, it's, it's now an obsolete political movement. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. And as far as the United States goes, it is no longer a revolutionary force. It is completely insignificant in the United States. In Argentina, it is still very influential, isn't it? Very much, very much, very much, very strong.
they still show themselves like a philanthropic organization that that's good, but but you know many of the laws all, and, all, and all organizations in government are, and yeah, are, are appointed by them. By them. Uh, do you have the last uh, question? I believe no. from the book. You, well, you mentioned, it, the, uh, you mentioned I, the last. I, I hope that with the post office we. We, we solve the problems that we have in order to receive logos rising because we have not been able to receive logos rising from the United States. Do you know why? Is your post office open now? That We were told that the post office in Argentina was closed. No. Is it open now? It's, a, it's one of the uh, few, few companies that are still working that never stopped. So... Did we send, did, did we, Luis, did I send you the copy? Did, did it get yes. sent we back? will receive it. Yeah, we will receive it. Yes, but uh, we, I did not receive it. it. It went back to you. Okay, then we will send it again. Very much. Thank you. The, Europe, Europe, has, Europe has opened up. Well, what, the problem with Europe was that they stopped sending airplanes. And so and the books piled up in Chicago and they finally put them on a ship. And the ship arrived in Rotterdam yesterday, and so people in Europe are now getting their copies of Logos Rising. Just so one, gradually the situation is opening. One final word about Logos Rising, the history of Logos and the Logos of history. It seems that it, it is becoming a worldwide issue or, or item of discussion that you have managed to install. Well, it's because chaos always leads people to want logos, and we're seeing the spread of chaos, and we're, we're, there, people need to hear that there's an order to the universe in the midst of all this chaos. So uh, this, this is the way God works in human history. He brings about the opposite of what evil men intend, brings good out of evil. And I think that, that this was the right moment. This was the right moment to start talking about logos and order. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jones, for sharing this, uh, this interview with us. Thank you very, very much. We hope uh, very soon we exchange another views if, uh, if we are allowed to. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to hear Luis's voice once again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Brillante. Luis, muchísimas gracias por haber acompañado el programa. ¿Eh? Gracias, gracias por, por Manuel por la invitación. Apoyó y nosotros lo mismo, agradecemos a todos los que nos han acompañado. Los esperamos en otra entrega de Contracara aquí por TV1. Toda la verdad que quiero. Hasta pronto. Gracias. Ah, de nada. De nada, muy bien. Saludos a Ruth. Send hi to Ruth. All right, bye-bye. Send us the link to the video once it comes out. Okay. Yes, of course. Thank you. Thanks. That's it. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you.